changing consumer preferences are altering the strategic direction of major retail brands. And they're creating an opening for challengers as well. The new reality for retail isn't about size. It's about who can adapt to stay alive. Welcome to Bernstein Insights. This is The Pulse, where we cover trends in the economy, markets, and asset allocation for long-term investors. I'm Matt Palazzolo, Senior Portfolio Manager, and today we're going to share some clips from Bernstein's Research and Innovation Conference held recently in Los Angeles. Our panel featured insights from Nick Vlahos, CEO of The Honest Company, a natural baby and beauty company founded by actress Jessica Alba. It also featured insights from Ali Dabaj, Bernstein's own top-ranked senior research analyst covering U.S. beverages, household, and personal care products. They spoke in front of an audience of successful entrepreneurs and investors, many of whom are focused on the consumer space. And we found their discussion quite compelling and wanted to give our listeners a chance to hear it firsthand. To start us off, Ali and Nick shared their thoughts on the rise of smaller upstarts and what is making those companies so viable right now. One of the big things that we're noticing across the consumer staple sector is that the barriers to entry of the consumer have fallen. And it used to be the case that the large manufacturers were the only ones who could afford the capex, the capital investments, to put steel and concrete in the ground, touching manufactured laundry or diapers or what have you. It used to be the only, the big companies who could get on, and I'll age myself here, uh, Thursday night television and Uh, Make sure you watch Seinfeld and have this commercial on TV. They're the only ones who could afford that uh, in the past. And they're the only ones who then could get Walmart to put themselves on shelf. Of course, that's not the case at all anymore. If you think about manufacturing, you can outsource manufacturing quite, quite, quite easily. In fact, um, you know, one of the biggest manufacturing outlays in the U.S. over the past 10 years was a $150 million plant by Church & Dwight in in York, Pennsylvania, $150 $150 million to make laundry detergent, right? Anybody in this room, and if you don't have a contact, let me know because I can hook you up with a contact. Anybody in this room could call up some of my friends and for $25,000 down, to actually now make private label or your own branded laundry detergent. It's a, it's a co-packing situation. And you can say the same thing about brands in terms of you know, uh, the much more even playing field of, of, of digital spending, social media, influencers, etc. You can broadly speaking, these barriers to entry of these large companies have, have come down, which have really allowed companies like The Honest Company and others to really develop into not so small businesses anymore. So- yeah, the Honest Story, uh, what makes it, I think, unique is it's a, a word that gets used a lot these days. Everyone talks about authenticity. And the neat thing about this company and this business is it's truly authentic and it's based on a consumer insight. And that insight, when Jessica Alba was first pregnant with her first child, she had an allergic reaction and a bad experience with a detergent that she had purchased to use uh, to basically take care of the clothing that she got from her baby shower. So when she was pregnant and she had that reaction, she basically did a bunch of research and she tried to figure out how is she going to take care of this baby that's growing within me? And what are the types of products that I should be using around what I'm putting in my body, what I put on my skin, what's around me from an environment standpoint? And now seven years later, uh, we play in the uh, personal care space with products in the baby segment and personal care as well as beauty, as well as household. And uh, she built a business in a seven-year time period that went from zero to over $300 million. 
and we're looking to accelerate that growth through an omni-channel presence. So, As Nick shared his plans to take the Honest Company's brand global, the discussion turned to the challenges and limitations of geographic expansion, from scaling globally to modifying your marketing message when moving into a new territory. Built different businesses over the years. I worked on a business called Burt's Bees uh, that I built out years ago. And that business, you know, going and planting flags in markets and trying to build a business just by getting distribution, because the barriers of entry that Ollie mentions are low. Um, however, people still want to, at the end of the day, buy into a brand that speaks to them, that delivers from a performance standpoint based on the promise that you're making. So it's super important that even though barriers are entry are low and maybe you can get into a market, how do you last within a market? And that goes back to having the right product proposition. And what we talk a lot about at Honest, it's about performance, it's about safety and design. And what you need to do there is ensure that you've got the right product proposition and then find the right folks to actually work with you to build and scale a business. But brand premise and kind of the ethos of the brand is super important to have that translate, you know, wherever you go across border. Localization around preferences and product, super important also. So that's why as you pick categories that you want to go into a market with, you know, food is a good example. You know, if you're a food player in the U.S. versus what you're going to turn around and offer, you know, in mainland China, two different discussions at the end of the day based on taste. I, I agree. You have to localize um, uh, not just the, the product and hopefully you can platform or create chassis about this, but, but you also have to think about the distribution channels. So a lot of companies have, have made the mistake, and again, with Omnichannel, it's becoming a little bit more, um, more, 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 more muddled or more kind of joint. But you know, take take the diaper category. Uh, um, for diaper category, for many many years, a lot of the large multinational players didn't go into the baby channel at all, right? Which is a huge channel in China, as an example, the baby store channels, um, and and they just missed the boat on that. So so understanding the different places that people shop for your product sounds like a simple thing. It's not that simple. It's one of the things that you have to uh, uh, make sure you localize as well. Geographic expansion is one thing, but what about extending the brand across categories? Nick offered his view of a brand's reach. I always look at it through the lens of like a concentric circle. So it's like, hey, what's this insight? So I keep talking about, hey, the original insight was around, you know, Jessica and this baby and, 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 and being a first-time mom. Build off of that insight because it is authentic, it is real. And so the first element of the concentric circle is stay in, th- in that core that you can actually start to scale and build out. Because with any business, there's always the shiny penny syndrome. So right now, we're very focused around, I talk a lot about you know, what you put on your skin, what you put in your body, and what's around you from an environment standpoint that imp- impacts your health and wellness. You could say, Nick, why not just go into every one of those categories? I can talk about supplements, about in. I could talk about probiotics. I can talk about you know, on your skin, lotions and beauty. I can talk around, around surfaces and cleaning and air purification. Potentially, you can go into all those areas. But the key here is, how do you do it in a way where it's authentic and where at the end of the day, you can scale a business, be profitable, be self-sufficient, and be able to build against that promise over time. So for me, it's very singular focus around right now what you're putting on your skin. So that's why you see us really building the portfolio in 
baby personal care as well as beauty. Um, and then eventually, as you look at that next layer out, where are your capabilities and where is your skill set to be able to then build out? Is it you know, what you put in, not necessarily foods, but can you play in a supplement space? We do prenatal vitamins. Could that be a connection? Ali also chimed in with his view of how branding has evolved. It used to be that there with awareness and familiarity and hopefully got down to loyalty in some way. And this was a really kind of constraining funnel that you got the consumer to walk through for a tide, as an example. A lot of these large CPG companies all grew up in a very rigid environment. Now they're sitting here where there are many different entry points in terms of buying their product, and they don't know how to handle it, which lay that a much more kind of even playing field for folks who can create authenticity. And look, this is not just a theory. If you look about it um, from just a, a pure numbers perspective, look at the ad spend mix, again, the then and now, 1999, Look at how much ad spend was spent on traditional media. 97% of ad spend, building a brand, the TV show on, on Thursday nights or what have you, was, um, uh, was traditional. Now, today, it's, it's about half, right? In fact, we're trending it to be less than half among the large CPG companies and the retailers right now, which is in traditional media, right? That means that you don't have an advantage for the other half of your business from a cost perspective and from a marketing perspective. Anybody can tackle an influencer, Anybody can go on social media. Anybody could, with success, and, and, and again, the, 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 the example clearly of the success is, is the honest company, be able to capture that consumer and get them into, into, that, into that cycle. The brand building is completely different than it used to be, uh, and you see it manifested in where these big companies are putting their money where their mouth is, but they're putting their money where their mouth is, i.e. digital advertising, where they don't have an advantage anymore. Given the shift to digital... How should business owners and entrepreneurs think about their digital media strategy? And how can they better utilize the data insights that they glean from online sales? Our panelists had some thoughts. The key for us, I think, and potentially a differentiator as we talk about direct-to-consumer and how do you create the connectivity with retail as well as this one-on-one relationship, is going back to how consumers also like to shop. And I think it's super important as you think of your digital strategies around, as a consumer, you might be very loyal to the honest company and you buy into uh, our brand promise as we talk about performance, safety, design. But you're also going to buy other things. You're not just going to buy honest products. So what we've worked hard on over the last couple years is taking the data that we have because we've got a, a subscriber base, hundreds of thousands of subscribers, that buy into the honest brand. But we also have a lot of information around those subscribers and their behaviors. And we know that we have a subscriber in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in Edina, Minnesota, uh, and her name's Mary, and she has a six-month-old, and his name's Billy. We have that information. How do I turn around and just not just sell her a diaper and sell her a personal care product, how do I help her with her life on a day-in, day-out basis? And how do I connect with her? And a lot of work that we do from a digital perspective is to create an omni-channel solution set for her. And an example would be, since I know the child's name, I know that it's six-month-old, I do know that it'll move out of a different diaper from, from, from a, a size two to a size three. Letting her know that it's time to change her order pattern is uh, uh, something that we would directly communicate with her. That's part of our digital strategy. How do we create this one-on-one relationship? But I can also let her know that 
guess what? I know she's a block from the Target store in Edina, and I know that that child most likely might need a car seat because they're going to change over based on their age. I can partner with Target, who I do business with, and offer a $5, you know, Graco car seat, you know, card that's available now for her. Now, did I sell more product for myself? Uh, at the end of the day, it's the right thing in that she's now able to have a solution set that I've targeted to her. I've messaged her a solution, made her, a, her life a little bit easier by switching and getting the right diaper size. And then all of a sudden, will she use you know, the, uh, the $5 value? Maybe, maybe not. But guess what? Target loves it because I've taken my data and I've pushed a consumer into an aisle, into a store that potentially she wasn't going to go into maybe. And now, what's in it for Honest from that standpoint? I have a 52-week end cap dedicated in the baby aisle because now Target's looking at us going, you know what, they're helping us at the end of the day sell more product and capture this valuable consumer. So a different take on marketing communication and data insight to be able to create really an omni-channel solution set. This, this is really interesting. One of the biggest challenges that that a lot of these large consumer packaged goods companies are finding, you guys have, have resolved a lot of this, is the data um, mismatch here that's out there. So, so the CPG companies used to be these companies who go up to the retailers and say, I know what your consumer wants. I've done a bunch of consumer surveys. I've done focus groups. And here's what it is. Boom, have me on shelf. Exclusive. I'll get you good margins. Done. And you know, what you find is more and more that isn't working. More and more, the focus groups actually tell you absolutely nothing, right, over time. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what you're finding. And what you're actually finding is that the retailers are starting to have better data, particularly if you're an e-commerce retailer. So think about Amazon and the data that they have. Think about how many times, you know, almost show of hands here, but how many times you've bought something on Amazon or looked at something on Amazon and it shows up when you do a Google search, right? Certainly can talk about privacy concerns and everything else, but if you are a consumer packaged goods company, right, um, who actually can have that data and can understand what the consumer wants and knows that that Graco car seat is ready to go for this particular consumer, that's a huge advantage. I'll build on that, Ali, a little bit because this is where, from an operational standpoint, I'll flip it the other way, which is, hey, I, I want to be able to limit my inventory. I want to not you know, spend as much money as I did a month ago next month. I'd like to lower my costs uh, on a day-in, day-out basis. And we'll take data. Here's a real example. You know, we created an initiative with our diaper business with Major League Diapers. So we did a, a program where we, you know, the Chicago Cubs had a Cub diaper. You had a Boston Red Sox diaper. It was really a cute program that people got excited about. So we did it in eight different cities. We took and, and basically did eight cities, eight baseball teams. And before we did it at retail, we did it online. And what that told us when we turned around and turned it to a direct relationship with the consumer is the fact that there are about six of the cities that sold really well, and there are a couple that did not. So what that informed me from an operational standpoint, understanding the data, understanding how the consumer is behaving, guess what? Those two cities, I'm not going to take on additional inventory, okay? Number two, I'm not going to go into Target, because I did go to Target, and say, you know what, we're going to create a program with you guys. But guess what? In these two geographies, we're not going to put product in the stores. 
So I limited, number one, my costs from an inventory standpoint. I limited you know, returns, and I made the customer a lot happier because guess what? In those other six cities, the product sold really well. It's okay to fail fast in that scenario. Absolutely. You know, well, guess what? It didn't work. You know what? Fail fast. Move on. We're not going to turn around and you know, kill ourselves over this. And you know, what's the next idea? As Ali and Nick have made clear, companies in the consumer space are evolving in the way that they interact with their consumers, brand their businesses, and handle their operations. And all of these changes are having a downstream impact on organizational structures, especially as established companies are confronted by challenger brands. I think a lot of what we, we, we've talked about is, and, and Nick just said it a second ago, about kind of failing fast, moving quickly, the, this kind of entrepreneurial mindset of test and learn. That's diametrically opposed to what these companies were built on. I mean, so you have teams who are brand managers, and then they call on different people who are split, splitting their time between marketing diapers one day and marketing laundry detergent the other day at a large company or toothpaste or what have you. And that's really slow, right? These companies are trying to do now is they're emulating the business organizational structures of these smaller entrepreneurial businesses. So, for example, um, what's an example? Unilever. Uh, uh, Clorox, your old company, Colgate now, what they've done is they basically said, okay, we're going to set you guys and gals up. You're going to run the North America pre- pre- premium toothpaste business, whatever, t- pick a brand, Colgate Total. Um, you're going to run this business. And on that team around this table is going to be the brand manager who's dedicated to you. You have the consumer insights person who's dedicated to you. You're going to have the account person who's roughly dedicated to you. You're going to have the brand... So, it's as if this is their business, and they have nothing else there. Now, the good news of that is that these companies can react, react very, very quickly. Right? They can pick out who the influencer is, if you're a cosmetics company or whatever. Right? They, can, they, can, they can get this data that we're talking about and actually adjust very quickly and fail quickly. The, the bad news of it is this whole theory of scale, scale is good, scale helps, actually doesn't. Right? You're unraveling it. You're unraveling that whole scale idea because you want that person to be dedicated and be really in tune with what that consumer wants for that product. Right? So the cost base is going up. So what are all these companies doing? They're, they're trying to get much more efficient on the cost structures that they have, supply chain, um, you know, uh, purchasing better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so that they can fund these almost um, microcosm of entrepreneurial ventures. Your old role at Burt's, for example, bringing in Clorox, when Clorox bought Burt's, so Clorox bought Burt's uh, several years ago, uh, when that company came in, really smart, let's leave them in North Carolina, let's leave them run their own business, because if they come in, we're just going to lose the whole flavor of what this business is. And now, Coke and Estee Lauder and Procter & Gamble are all doing that too. I think Ali nailed it. Let me create kind of this operation and allow folks to kind of understand you are owners, you've got the P&L, but then also, how do you take the benefits of the big corporation and implement them in your new company? I'll give you an example. So at Clorox, where I grew up, we would talk about R&D, and we would talk about a strategic product plan. And that strategic product plan was a three-year pipeline of innovation, ideas that we're going to drive on every business. So taking kind of the Clorox strategic product plan process and embedding that into an honest to be able to now start scaling a business, super important. I want more generalists that can turn around and do a couple different things because at the same time, I also don't want to run an operation with, you know, admin costs at 25 or 30% of sales. 
Because guess who my competitor is now that I start scaling my business? It is the Proctors. It is the Unilevers. And they could run an operation at 12 or 15% when you look at SG&A as a percentage of sales. In close, we asked Nick, who's built companies in the consumer space for 30 years, and Ollie, who's covered them for more than 20, if you had a crystal ball, what would the future look like? We believe that middle tier, the number five brand, the number six brand, the number seven brand, they're going to disappear, right? They're going to go away because what you have is you have a set of brands, these smaller brands, start off as smaller brands who can build momentum and become $300 million brands, maybe a billion dollar brands across businesses. They have, as we said, a bunch of barriers to entry that have come down, right? You can market, you can get to the consumer, you can manufacture your product. So these advantages that these larger companies had 10 years ago are not there anymore for these small brands. So they're going to flourish. I happen to invest in a lot of small and mid-cap names, right? And that's part of the reason why. On the flip side, though, these larger companies, whether you like them or not, right, these large companies, they're still going to invest, you know, in the Olympics. They're still going to invest in, uh, uh, you know, the Super Bowl or hockey playoffs or whatever the big thing is, FIFA World Cup. So they still have that ability. They still run a plant relatively relatively efficiently because they're actually quite big. They still have the opportunity to, to pay f- to Amazon so they get the sponsored ads. That's an auction process to get those sponsored ads. They have enough money to do that. So if you're the number one, maybe number two brand in a lot of these categories, you're at least protected a little bit. You're not in a great shape. You wish these small brands like you didn't exist, right? Um, but, but at least you're there. Oh, and by the way, you can buy these small brands, smaller brands. But the middle, right? Are you going to go to Amazon and search for tier number three brand in laundry detergent? You're not. Do they have the money to spend on Super Bowl? Not with good ROI, they don't. Uh, can, they, can they figure out a way to manufacture more efficiently than a co-packer? Not really. So these middle tiers, right, those are the ones that are going to be under a lot, a lot of pressure. Frankly, you know, the crystal ball for some of those is many of them go out of business. So if there are 10 of them, three or four of them will go out of business. The other ones will either make private label or combine that, that's our prediction, and that's what we're putting our money where our mouth is. That's how we're investing in a lot of our businesses. I think the, uh, when you say crystal balls, you look to the future and kind of where consumers are, and not, you know, the folks, you know, me growing up in the industry, there was a thing called channels that people would talk about. It would be, hey, we're going to go sell in the mass channel, and that was like Walmart. And then there was grocery, and you sell, that's the Kroger. Then there was the dollar store, and there was dollar gen. And we created kind of these channels, but at the end of the day, today's consumer wants accessibility, and they want to be able to buy and get product wherever they want it and whenever they want it. So I think it's going to be apparent for, you know, the big CPG companies and businesses to figure out what's the right value proposition for your product. Because I think as you look to the future and where things are headed right now is create the right value proposition in your product that can command your retail price that you're recommending and then be able to make it accessible and available wherever he or she wants to shop and buy it. If you want to shop it at Amazon and I can make Honest available at Amazon, great. If I could, you want to buy it at Walgreens and I can make it available there, great. Because at the end of the day, the onus falls back on me to figure out how to make money doing that. It's not up to the consumer and me forcing you into, you should just go to Target to buy it. If I can turn around and I don't want to buy it at Target, I want to buy it at Amazon, guess what? Up to me to figure that out. So I think more and more in the market, you're going to see businesses that have to figure out how to play across that equilibrium because the younger consumer base is agnostic when it comes to the channel discussion. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us on iTunes or your podcast service of choice, and be sure to subscribe. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.